Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we're going to continue with Genesis. We're going to finish up Genesis chapter 2 and learn that it really speaks a lot about Christ, our Savior. Here we go. Now, the name of the second river. Remember, there's these four rivers that are coming out of the Garden of Eden. The first one was Pishon. The second one here is Gihon, G-I-H-O-N. It is the one which goes throughout the whole land of Cush. Now, Gihon has two meanings, and they are both important. First is great eruption of waters and the Valley of Grace. Where in the life of Christ do we witness a great eruption or breaking out of water? And does it have anything to do with grace? Look to the cross. There we find the answer. For as he hung, having died, John the Apostle records, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Well, that's from John chapter 19. In piercing the pericardium, that sac which surrounds the heart, they released the water. Now we know that in times of extreme grief and sorrow, The pericardium will fill with water. I think it's been accurately said that though Christ did not die from a broken heart, he died with a broken heart. Here is the breaking forth of water that was the perfect expression of God's grace. God's gift of salvation to us. The death of his precious son to atone for all of our sins a gift we did not merit in any way. And that flow has been winding its way for nearly 2,000 years through this place named Cush. Hmm. Cush, you see, it means blackness. And Cush was the father of Nimrod, who we will see later became the legendary rebel against God, initiating what many scholars believe to be the original post-diluvial false religious system. But indeed, that's where grace penetrates and abounds, places of rebellion and darkness. Romans 5.20 says, For where iniquity abounds, there does grace much more abound. Well, Genesis goes on. The name of the third river is Hidekel, or the Tigris. It is the one which borders the east of Assyria, or Ashur. Hidekel means a sharp voice, and indeed Christ's voice, though he did not shout, was sharp as a sword, for he spoke the word of God. In fact, he is the word of God. It was said of him prophetically from Isaiah 49, Listen, O coastlands, to me. And take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. 
He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Interesting. In concert, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. The fact that this river borders Assyria is especially descriptive, for Assyria means one who is happy and walks on prosperously. You see, as we take heed to what Jesus said, that is, to the Word of God, and make it the border or parameter of our life, we find the happiness and prosperity God intends. Now, some today would have us believe that this prosperity and happiness are just material-based, but I firmly believe that they are primarily spiritual and thus eternal. Well, that brings us to the fourth river. Genesis continues. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, Euphrates has two meanings as well. First, fertilizing, and then fruitful. Unlike today, where we have all sorts of chemicals to put into the soil, fertilizing was historically the result of mixing with the soil some animal or plant life that had died. The result, of course, was increased fruitfulness. Again, this is the Lord Jesus. His death and burial brought forth the fruit of the kingdom, eternal life. Note that this is the only river for which there is no described course. Now, to me, that's perfect, because Christ died for the sins of the whole world. The gift of eternal life is for anyone who will receive it. It's not limited to any people or nation or church or political party. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Genesis continues. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Man was placed in paradise to enjoy it, but he was also to tend and keep it. That reminds me of the story of the farmer, who, as he was showing his farm to a visiting pastor, was a little perturbed when the clergyman said, This place is beautiful. You must really feel blessed when you look at what God gave to you. No, the old farmer stuck out his lower lip, shook his head. His terse response was, Preacher, you should have seen it when God had it. <laughs> of course, his perspective was funny in its distortion. Nevertheless, God did ordain man for labor. Believe it or not, it's one of the more spiritual things you can do in balance. A good day's work is good for the soul. Indeed, one of the reasons man is presently plagued with so many problems is his penchant for idleness. Now, 
For some, it's just the opposite, and work can become a consuming thing. That's not God's intent. He said to both enjoy and work, a balanced harmony. We should note also that in tasting of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all man would gain would be the knowledge of evil. He already knew God and his creation, thus he was already thoroughly intimate with good. It's possible that the attraction of knowing evil was part of what captivated Eve's heart, uh, we'll see later, and it's the same way today, especially with young people who have grown up in a loving home, knowing the goodness of God. Many are, like Eve, attracted to know or experience evil. We've got to understand that evil can be attractive. It's one reason people are glued to the TV or movie screens. Evil, whether violence or sexual lewdness or irreverence of some sort, in a way is attractive and pleasurable, but only for a season. Hebrews 11 said, By faith Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You see, that's why all of us, especially parents, need to be actively teaching why evil is evil. It ultimately brings death. It destroys. It separates us from intimacy with the source of all that is good, God. Satan's mantra is, if it feels good, do it. He never encourages us to think of the consequences or truly examine whether or not something is good. His tactics include portraying good as evil and evil as good. It's his grand delusion. However, the scripture says woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. That's Isaiah chapter 5. And Genesis goes on. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him out of the ground the Lord God formed, every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So again we picture that God was or is consistently looking to do good for man. He knows the sweetness of intimate fellowship, and he wanted Adam to have that as well. Now along came all the birds and beasts, and Adam gave names to each one. A Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, Mr. and Mrs. Baboon, Mr. and Mrs. Swan. You know, and at some point, the light probably went on. Hey, wait a minute, he might have thought. There's no Mr. and Mrs. Adam. Understand that this whole process was to put into Adam's mind, that is, that he was lacking something, or rather someone, someone comparable to him. 
None of this was for God's benefit. He knew what he was going to do and what Adam would name each creature. This was for Adam to make him aware of his need. And the Lord is still doing this, isn't he? He'll often put us in situations that compel us to comprehend our need. And then he provides it. And comparable is the key word here. Different versions of the Bible translate this idea in a variety of ways. Helper meet, which can mean suitable, adapted, completing. That's the amplified version. A companion, a helper suited to his needs. That's the living Bible. A helper such as he needs. That's the Beck translation. A helper correspondent to himself. That's the Septuagint Bible. A helper suitable. That's the NIV. A help meet for him. King James Version. But the idea is the same in all of them. It wasn't a matter of Adam recognizing a creature with his hands and feet walking upright. Remember, Adam was essentially the most perfect man, apart from Christ, to ever live. He was the original handiwork of God, and he was likely more intelligent naturally, even maybe than Einstein. No, this comparableness was to be as deep as the heart. In fact, there is a beautiful Jewish tradition that says that God made woman not out of man's foot to be under him, nor out of his head to be over him, but she was taken from under his arm that he might protect her, and from next to his heart that he might love her. Secondly, we should note helper, for indeed Eve was made for that purpose. Nowhere is there a sense of inferiority or servitude, but rather that of being comparable to him. She would be capable of helping him. Recall that Jesus called the Holy Spirit our helper. The Bible says, But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, as John 15. And certainly the Spirit of God is not our servant. Perhaps the understanding of the role of helper can be gleaned from this testimony by Pastor Kent Hughes. He said, There was a time when I was going through some dark days, some of the darkest I'd ever known in the ministry. I felt alone. I could not sense the presence or help of God. As I was sharing this late one night with my wife, her life-giving words to me were, Hold on to your faith. I have enough faith for both of us. God's presence through her was an anchor to my soul. Thank you, Lord. That's wonderful. The Bible goes on. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to man. And Adam said, Oh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. There are a couple of lessons here for us. First, we should note the rest that God brought upon Adam. After revealing his need, 
God put him in the position of peace and receptivity. We don't see Adam acting like George of the Jungle, swinging from tree to tree, peering through foliage, shouting out, Yoo-hoo! Woman, where are you? Rather, it was God who brought Eve to Adam. This again speaks of grace, beautiful grace. And unfortunately, we are all too prone to search high and low when we're lonely, sometimes to even take the next friendly animal we meet and try to make him or her our intimate. But truly, it's when we are at rest, trusting in the Lord's goodwill for us, that we discover his gracious provision, someone who's just right for us. Secondly, God made a bride from his side. And the same is true for the one the Bible calls the last Adam. When he hung upon that cross, he did not fight death, for he trusted in the Father. In a sense, he also was laid to rest looking forward to his resurrection. And because he had this peace, he died earlier than the other two who were being crucified with him. In fact, the normal custom was to break the victim's leg so that he could no longer aspirate by pushing himself up on the spike driven through his feet. So when the soldier came to Jesus, finding him already dead, he shoved a spear through his side. And John the Apostle, who was nearby, records that out of his side flowed blood and water. This is beautiful, for blood and water are the fluids of birth. Something was being birthed in his death. The church, his bride, redeemed by his atoning blood. Check out 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He was washed by the water of his word. Ephesians 5. He is indeed making his bride comparable to himself. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. For now, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. This, of course, does not mean that we will be omnipotent or omniscient, but rather comparable, a bride fit for intimacy with him throughout eternity. So when Adam was resurrected from the rest God placed him in, He beheld his bride, and pow, ignition, blast off. He was really impressed. Now, this is great because the Apostle Paul wrote in his epistle to the church in Rome that Adam was a type or symbol of Christ. Look at Romans 5.14. I often struggle with this because the longer I'm a Christian, the more I'm aware of my own failings and sinful nature. Like Paul I want to exclaim, I am the chiefest of sinners. I don't see anything in the mirror that I think would be attractive to Jesus. But this 
tells me that when Christ sees his church, it's just like Adam. He's impressed with his bride. That is a wonderful mystery. Genesis goes on, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Let's return to this idea of comparable for a moment. Again, it was not implying just a physical similarity, but really a relatability, an understanding and empathy. It's this sense of, I've been there, I know how it is, and I can relate personally. Thus, such a one can be helpful. With Adam as a picture of Christ, Eve is then a type or picture of his bride, the church. Now, you may have heard it preached that God sent his son to earth so he would understand us, but I don't think that's the case. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. Jesus indeed can sympathize with us because of his being with us. But he already understood us completely. He's God. He didn't need to come as a man, suffer the cross, and much more, to gain understanding. But we needed to gain an understanding of God. It's only when we are comparable with Jesus, in the sense of relating to him, that we are helpful or useful in his hands. So, how do we relate to the Lord? Well, when one of my children went to be with the Lord, some people said, I know how you feel. You know, they meant well, but I knew they really didn't know. They just couldn't relate. But one day a pastor friend of mine tragically lost his child in a car accident, and I could honestly say, I know some of what you're going through. And the Apostle Paul found himself relating to Christ in a similar way. He recorded, What things were gained to me, these I have counted for loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's Philippians 3. You see, we increasingly relate to the Lord as we follow in his footsteps. It may mean the loss of certain things in our lives, but even then, we will be drawn closer to him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, rather cling, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is a parenthetical statement. Certainly, there are many lessons for marriage here, but again, we note the allusion to Christ, who left heaven, and in a sense, his father and motherly comfort of the Spirit, that perfect unity of fellowship, that which he'd enjoyed since eternity past. 
he left it to become one with his bride, to bring his church together and into unity with God. Speaking to the Father concerning his disciples, he said in John 17, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Also, it's written in Galatians 3, There is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 5, we read, For we are members of his body, of his flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Genesis continues, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, I mean this reverently. Jesus was indeed naked before us. He bared himself in two ways. He made bare his heart and soul as he taught us the truth and ministered, as he revealed the character of Father God. And he also bared his body on the cross of Calvary, where he laid his life down. Today, as much as ever, it is sin that causes us to hide our hearts from our spiritual husband, to be less than honest with him and others, and to keep our life covered rather than bear it and lay it down. You might think, I'm ashamed of my life the way I thought and acted, but the beauty of the mystery of God is that in covering your sins with his atoning blood, he sets you free from sin's shame, and you can be naked completely open and honest, before him as he is before you. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast and may you realize more of his grace today.